This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 16th of October, 2022. You can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is... Tips on motivation and achievement in the classroom. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 21st radio show as a hostess and I'm delighted to share this experience in your lovely company. But first I have to introduce myself to any new listeners. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the United Kingdom since 2008 and I'm a professional educator. I currently work in a secondary state school in North London where I teach both languages as well as humanities. I have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. So today I wanted to focus on one topic that is relevant to me as an educator and personally in my daily working life and also as a parent. This podcast and discussion will be on the topic of tips on motivation and achievement for the classroom. This is mostly relevant to any educators in the English speaking world and beyond parents of students who attend state schools, and anyone who's curious and savvy to know what's going on in the field of education in 2022. You can interact with me live on Twitter at ProfProfMFL or by using the chat function on Teachers Talk Radio. I'm going to start with my usual definition. I love looking at the history of words and their etymology. So first, let's look at um, what achievement means. Academic achievement is the extent to which someone, possibly a student, has achieved short or long-term educational goals. So if we look at the situation in, in the United Kingdom, the educational goals are defined by the institution, which is a governmental institution, the Department for Education, and they follow a political agenda reflected by the current government. And they are usually short term at the end of each year um, and also long term at the end of, let's say, KS5 with the first GCSE exams and also um, KS4 with GCSE exams and KS5 with A-levels. Now, achievement is measured and whether it is a very efficient way to 
to check if a student has achieved their goals, that's another discussion altogether. But we can say that at the moment in the United Kingdom, we use grades to measure achievement and they are defined with a very different system depending on which region of the United Kingdom they are. In education, we also have a very important notion, one I have to think about on a daily basis, and that is motivation. So what is motivation? Motivation, I would say, is a feeling and an attitude that helps children or young people to focus their attention on something. And this something might be a subject or it might be a task or it might also be a goal. In, do, in being motivated, the children are able to avoid possible distractions, stay concentrated on what they're doing, maintain their attention during longer periods of time, and they're also motivated to achieve their goal oriented or their goals with orientated behaviors. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you have students who are achievers, who have a good achievement, you will have students who are motivated. Now, the question is, as an educator, how do you get students who are motivated and achieve? Well, I looked at a study to prepare this discussion with you. So this is a report uh, entitled Achievement for All National Evaluation Final Report. It's a Department for Education study and the person who led the study is called Professor Neil Humphrey and Dr. Gary Squires. So you can access this report online and if you wish to do so, it's 130 pages long and it's entitled Report DFE-RR176. So I read this report for your sake and mine and I can tell you a bit more about what has been studied. So obviously it's not a national study, it's a study with a sample of schools. And the Achievement for All study has looked at what defines achievement and also what are the schools that have good achievement for their students. And in their study, they realized that the importance of school characteristics is paramount. So I'm gonna quote a part of that study. They said, a multi-level analysis demonstrated that schools characterized by higher attendance and achievement, stronger homeschool relations prior to the start of the study, and smaller pupil populations tended to achieve better outcomes. So what does that mean? When I hear this, well, first I have alarm bells ringing, because what sort of schools have high attendance, high achievement, and students who have good, good homeschool relationships and also smaller pupil populations. Well, these are not the usual schools because we do have very big ratio of students per classroom in many, many schools due to budget cuts since 2010. So these are a very, very minute uh, type of schools. So these schools achieve better outcomes. Now, if you're familiar with research, most of the time we 
are being told as teachers that there is no correlation between small class sizes and achievement. Well, I see in this study by the DfE that they have noticed that schools characterized by these very small pupil population end up having better outcomes. So I find that rather interesting. And now they also said, and I'm going to quote again, schools with larger proportions of pupils eligible for free school meals, the acronym is FSM, speaking English as an additional language, the acronym being EAL, or at the latter stages of SEND provision, SEND is special educational needs, um, these schools made progress, but not of the same magnitude as the other schools we talked about. So what does that say? It says that if you have a school where there's a lot of children on free school meals, and let's be honest, this is a big paraphrases, free school meal, and it just means that the students have a family income that's less than £7,000. So it means it's children in poverty. So whenever you see pupils with free school meals or FSM students, you will be, you will know you're talking about children in poverty. So these schools with children in poverty, children who have English as an additional language and children who have special educational needs do not make the same progress as the schools with smaller pupil populations, with good attendance and stronger homeschool relations. So I think it's quite interesting to read that in a study published by the Department for Education. It shows basically that there's a high level of inequality in our state schools and that it has a direct impact on achievement. Now, where are we at if we look at the state? of our schools in the UK in regard to achievement. So again, in that Department for Education report, it says that pupils who have stronger positive relationships, pupils who go to school every day and who have high levels of academic achievements, they have better outcomes. Now, the reason why they insist on these three criteria, stronger positive relationships and attendance as well as achievement, is that this is, this is children who already start with a better situation. Usually, we see children with low attendance coming from deprived areas and also children with uh, difficulty in their home life have less chances to have good academic achievement. So this is, again, nature versus culture. So it shows that in our schools, if you start with a positive home life, you will do better. But if you are already at a disadvantage socially, you will not have the same outcome. So I find that quite distressing as a teacher because I want all my students to do well. And I am teaching in a school where my students are 65% on FSM, which is free school meals, which means that 65% of my students are in poverty. So what is that Department for Education report recommending schools to do to try and improve achievement and outcome? Well, they say that there are ways to remedy um, the difficult starts that some students have. And they say 
it takes three forms. The implementation of structured conversations with parents. So I take it that if the school manages to build a strong relationship with the parents, with positive communication and help when needed, this has a positive outcome on achievement for the students. And th this is something I, I witness in my daily practice because the parents who are involved, the parents who are happy to communicate with us, we can work as a team. It's as simple as that. If we have the parents on board, we can both work, the school and the parents, in the um, for the better advancement of the children. Now, the Department for Education report also advises schools having a communication between themselves. It's not just primary school, the ones that feed the secondary schools, but also other secondary schools in the neighborhood. And this is something I'm looking forward to doing this year. I would like to visit other schools in my neighborhood, not as a prospective parent as I used to, but as a teacher who wants to see good practice. Because what works in one borough of London can be something to emulate and try out in my borough. So more exchanges with teachers in the same area are positive and can help with achievement. And now the third advice by this Department for Education report on uh, education for all and achievement for all is that we need to have a very good provision put in place to support vulnerable learners. So vulnerable learners, it can be learners who have a difficult home life and we call them usually vulnerable students. Or we can also add to that category the students who have special educational needs. So it might be a mild form of dyslexia all the way to ADHD, or it can be hearing impediments, visual impediments, or um, being nonverbal if a student is uh, neurodivergent. So all these, these three aspects, communication with parents, communications between schools, and good provision are the best way for schools to improve achievement for students. So that's something we can put in place, and this is something I'm curious to work on. Now, in that report, um, there were guidelines. So I did mention communications with parents and also provision for students with educational needs. There is something else that's mentioned, and it's assessment. So assessment is when we um, check the level of the students. Now, this is also very controversial because a lot of teachers and parents argue that there's too many tests in the educational system in the UK, starting in primary school and at the end of year six with what we call SATs, S-A-T. Um, these are tracking devices and they allow the teachers to know what the level of the students is. I find it quite helpful, but I call I call them myself in my own practice. I call them diagnoses because it allows me to say, oh, someone has a need of further intervention on that particular task and someone is flying with high colors with that. So it helps me have an idea of what my students know. Now, there is an achievement for all logo, which is uh, 
found on that DFE report, and it's using uh, Venn diagrams with circles. You have children and young people in a black circle in the middle. A number one blue circle, it's assessment, tracking, and intervention. Number two, it's the communication with parents. And number three, provision for special outcomes. Now, what we forget a lot, I think, as educators, and also as policymakers on the topic of education, is that when we talk about assessment, it's not just testing students and seeing where they're at. That's only the first step. What actually matters the most is the second step, and it is intervention. And I feel that we have forgotten that second step. We use SATs, we use lots of testing, um, I remember my son coming into a new secondary school and the first thing they did is they asked him to sit down in a room and do a test. Um, I didn't sign him up for that school eventually because I felt it was the wrong way of seeing education. But I know this is done very often. So assessing is only useful if we're going to do something out of the results. If we assess and then we just label the children between uh, low, middle, and high uh, achiever, this is not going to be helpful, and this is this could be detrimental. So I really want to insist on the fact that there is no point assessing unless we have a good intervention plan afterward. Now, someone who was part of that study um, said, and I think it's really important I quote this person, it was an A. FA lead, and it's an anonymous quote. We need to really acknowledge the fact that teaching assistants probably know the children better than any other members of staff because they've seen them in different situations all day. So I think this is the most important part of that report from the Department for Education. When you want to know how your students achieve and how they are in school, the tests might not be the best tracking tool. Actually talking to someone who knows them and the teaching assistant is the person who knows them well because they follow the students in different classrooms, in different subjects. And I think this is a valuable piece of um, knowledge if we want to think about overall achievement. We need to know who's got the best accurate information and it might not be data, it might just be the teaching assistant who is very often overworked and underpaid in our state schools. Now, I want to um, go back to what we have as a setting. Normal daily routine in an English school is very particular, very different from my normal daily routine when I was a student in France, for instance. Most of the time, the day starts between 8 and 9 in the morning and stops between 2.40 and 3.15 or 3.30 thereabouts. It is quite a um, long day, relatively, because there is often only 30 minutes break for lunch. Now, most schools have five periods, which is five lessons, five different subjects per day, but other schools have less, depending on how long the lesson lasts for. Now, I just want to look back at science and data. If you look at the average attention span of a child, you're going to see that the way we structure our normal daily routine 
is not particularly pragmatic and not at all scientific. So when we start school, we are four years old in the UK. Per hour, the attention span of a child age four is from eight to 12 minutes of intense focus for an hour. That is not a long time, is it? Then we slowly increase and at the end of primary school, when we're 10 years old, for each hour, we are intensely focused for 20 to 30 minutes. So that's a good progression. It's almost half of the time. Now, when we start secondary school, when we are year seven, eight, we are attentive and focused for 24 to 36 minutes per hour. Again, if you think about the school day with five periods of approximately an hour each, it means that half of that time we are not focused and we can't really pay attention because our brain is not ready for that yet. And when we leave secondary school, when we do our GCSEs and we're 16, 15 or 16, our brain can only focus intensely out of each hour for 30 to 48 minutes. So it's a good increase, but it means that it's only maximum three quarters of an hour, give or take. And that's for the highest um, developed achievers students. So are we doing our normal daily routine properly? Is it based on scientific facts? I'm not so sure. Now I want to talk about what I see in my school because I find that it is actually quite a good way of dividing the time that is allocated each day. So in my school, we do not have a lesson per hour. We have only three subjects per day and we are together in one topic or in one lesson for an hour and 40 minutes. So you might think, oh, that's a long time, an hour and 40 minutes. And the children, if they can only focus for 30 to 45 minutes per hour, it's not going to work so well. Well, I have experienced something a little bit different. I build my lesson planning in a way that allows my students to settle down. So depending on the class and depending on the number of very lively students I have per class, shall we say it takes five to 15 minutes to settle down my class so that they are all in a situation where they're ready to learn you might think it's a long time but i'm being very realistic here sometimes it takes 15 minutes to calm them down so that we can start and sometimes they're ready from the get-go but most of the time it's five to 15 minutes now if we only had 55 minutes of lesson it would be a bit of a waste content-wise. I would not have the time to teach a full lesson with the necessary content I have to give them. So I think that because my subject, my lesson is an hour and 40 minutes, it allows us to take more time to just control and learn to control our behavior and our emotions. I also plan five to 15 minutes to leave class, more or less. And this allows us to prepare everything, tidy the room, and also have a breather, maybe chat about something and be ready to change subject and go to another classroom. I think there's advantages. We don't rush and we have time to settle most students in the lesson. And we also have time to maybe do a few more games 
so I would advise any um, senior leadership team to consider if they can change the, the periods, the number of periods per day, and maybe reduce it to three periods a day of one hour and 45 minutes. Because I do think it allows a better use of that attention span. I'm not asking my students to be focused the whole time in the lesson. I give them times to do some admin. I give them times to glue stuff. I give them time to just exchange and talk by pair or per group. But I think we need extra time if we only have 55 minutes because it's too hard to teach a lesson with content in such a small amount of time. So how do I make sure that the 38 to 42 minutes that a 15 year old can focus very effect effectively, how do I make sure this is well used? Well, it is important to teach our students how to regulate their emotions and how to not get distracted. So I use a lot of tricks that most, most teachers do, do use. I use the silence routine, a countdown from five to zero. I use a lot of um, scaffoldings, I call it. So it's posters that tell my student what they're supposed to do. For instance, if I show a glue poster, then they know they need to glue their activity sheet. If I show a green pen poster, they know it's time for correction. I use these visual signs because it's good to have something else than just uh, vocal instruction. And also we make it as a game, for instance, I would show the green pen um, poster, but I wouldn't say uh, the French word for green pen. So then they would know that they, they don't need their green pen. So I'm checking to see if they follow me. And if I say green pen in French and I show the poster, they know they have to correct. And it becomes a game and it breaks the flow and it allows us to get rid of the tension sometimes. Um, they do like this game. It's a little bit like a Simon Says. Now, because I want them to be focused and hyper-focused when I give them a particular task, I need to give them a time for a breather. And these games are the time when they can take a breath. Built-in short breaks for task tasks are a good way to manage time and to keep concentration going. Because you can't have achievement if you don't make the best use of that attention span we talked about. Now. It is important that we plan for students who have special educational needs. And this is one of the recommendations from the Department of Education that I mentioned earlier. So I just want to focus on one type of educational needs because this is one I'm familiar with. And also because it's the one that I think affects classroom behavior the most. It's the ADHD. So ADHD stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. ADHD is more and more common. We do not know if it's because we diagnose it better or because it might be linked to um, more cases of ADHD. And we don't know what causes ADHD. It might be something in our diet. It might be exposure to pollution. It might be overexposure to screens. Uh, overexposure to sugar in our diet, we're not sure. We do not have enough um, scientific uh, research and data to uh, build a case 
to, to find out. But we do know there's more and more students with ADHD. Now, there's two very easy to spot behavior uh, symptoms of ADHD. And any teacher is very familiar with it. There is inattentiveness. So it's the student who can't really focus and find concentrating difficult. And it's a student who might just be daydreaming or um, away with the fairies. This is what we were saying in the 80s. Now we know it's a part of the ADHD and it's the one for uh, attention deficit. Now there is another behavior um, issue with ADHD and it's hyperactivity and impulsiveness. And we all know that having a, a student who is hyperactive is really hard to deal with in a classroom. Now, I just want to insist on the fact that so many students have ADHD, but they do not have inattentiveness and hyperactivity at the same level. Some students might be very inattentive, but have no hyperactivity. And some might be very impulsive, but not having difficulty focusing. So ADHD sufferers are not the same, and they all have a different way of expressing their ADHD uh, disorder. So it is important to know how to identify ADHD because we need to put things in place to help students who have ADHD. It's not enough to give a label or to give a diagnosis or to refer the child to the Senko and get a diagnosis privately. What matters is what we do once we know that a child has ADHD. So for parents, what we recommend is, uh, and I speak of experience because I do have a child who has uh, ADD. So we are recommended to plan our days very carefully and to really make sure our child knows what's gonna happen that day. We are expected to set clear boundaries. I would say, and I would argue that students with ADHD and children with ADHD need even more clear boundaries, very clear expectations. We need to be positive and we need to give instructions as we go along. There's no point saying today you're gonna do this and we'll do this, 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 this. It's better to say, and now we're gonna do this for this reason. And then when you need to do something else, you can say, and right now we're changing and we're gonna do this for this reason. Because if, if you give a list of instructions at the beginning of the day, they'll be forgotten or they'll be jumbled up. It is very important to have an incentive scheme. So I call them trips or treats. Uh, treats don't have to be sugary. Treats could be anything, could be popcorn, it could be a movie. It doesn't have to be something that damages the children's teeth. It is important to intervene early. I think it's the best is to get a diagnosis going and then have a plan to support the child so that they get the best outcomes in their education. Uh, too often we diagnose children with ADHD in secondary school. This should be done in primary school. Uh, we should also create positive social situations, but not too many because ADHD also comes with um, a, a sensitivity to um, exposure. So if you 
take your child to a loud environment for too long a time, this will uh, affect your child negatively. So small doses, definitely. And I'll come to the last advice for parents of children with ADHD, and it's exercise. Your child needs to be in the outdoors. Um, your child needs to exercise every day. And I remember taking my son to the park every day at 9.30 when he was little, because otherwise the day would not be manageable. So exercise, clear instructions, positive reinforcement, and set incentive scheme, and no, not overwhelming the child in difficult social situations. Now, this is what the parent of an ADHD child will have to do to, to improve achievement. But what do we do in a classroom? So the advice for teachers is to have a strict routine. And I would say it's an advice that's really sound because a strict routine is reassuring for the students, but also for the teachers. If you do the same routine every day, you won't panic because you'll forget something. You're so used to it, to do it, to doing it, that you'll feel reassured and you'll feel at ease. Um, it's good to plan for no surprises because teaching, we know what it is. There's always something that's going to try and derail your lesson. So if your lesson is very smooth with a very strict routine and a very, very on point development that you've practiced over the months, you will feel like you're a bit more uh, prepared. Um, so reward system, same as with parents, it's it's very useful. So it can be merit points or achievement points, anything you use in your school. I would always say being systematic yet fair. So I wouldn't say we need to um, accept disruptive behavior just because a child has ADHD or another special educational needs. We need to be fair because if a child disrupts some of someone else's learning, this is not fair on the other, other person's learning. So as long as you have very clear rules and boundaries and you give options for the student who has ADHD to regulate him or herself, it is important to keep the same rules for everybody. Enunciating clear expectations, I think it works for everybody, whether they're um, special educational needs, uh, children with special educational needs, or very high academically um, successful students. Having the five minute timeout, I use it personally. I think it's a good way to teach children to be responsible in regulating their emotions. It allows disruption to be reduced. My only issue, as a matter of fact, is a safeguarding issue because we do not always see the child who is having his five-minute timeout in the corridor. So the child could um, truant and leave the, the corridor or um, the child could do something silly in the corridor, such as starting the fire alarm. Or So it is really a difficult one, the five-minute timeout. I would say, you know your students. If you have students who are um, sincerely trying to regulate their emotions because they have special educational needs, the timeout is a great tool. Now, if you know the student also has... Um, difficult behavior issues, you might have to ask for assistance and not let the student out without supervision. So this is something you need to deal with with your uh, school and its organization. Now, because I have quite a few students with ADHD, 
I use a simple, very simple tool, and it's my green light, red light. It's a poster with a red light on one side that says, do not interrupt and wait to ask questions. And the green light sign says, now this is the time for you to ask questions. And why am I using this poster? Because I have students who found um, regulating their calling out very difficult. So this is the type of student that you might be familiar with, who is always blurting out questions randomly without following the rule for asking questions. So in my classroom, because we are 30 students in a room, we have a putting our hands up before asking permission and waiting for the teacher to make eye contact and say the name. So because some students are struggling with that, I have used my green light, red light system poster and it works. So this is my tip. Use something that is simple to put in place. It's cheap. It's a printed paper in color and use it effectively. So I don't need to use it in all my classrooms, in all my um, lessons, even though I have uh, students with ADHD in most of my classes. I think it's when it's coupled with um, a lack of um, strict boundaries from home that we have students who, who are constantly calling out. But the green light and red light system works because I've explained why I'm using it. I've told my students, if I'm trying to explain something and I'm thinking and focusing on something, if you question me all the time, I lose my flow and I lose my train of thoughts. And I said, it's just the same way as when you're doing something and someone asks you something else. So I try to teach empathy with my students by explaining how I'm thinking and what works for me and what doesn't. And then I ask them to respect the way I'm thinking and the same way I respect the way they're thinking. So if I have my light, red light, it's because I'm trying to do something and if I get distracted, I won't be able to finish it. And they understand it very well, particularly students with ADHD, because they know how it feels to lose your concentration. So now my tips for uh, MFL learning, modern foreign languages, but not just for that, also for any teachers who wants to increase outcome for students who have special educational needs, it's to use props. And I mean, this is not nothing new. I used it as a child at school 30 years ago. So I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm just suggesting tips so that we adapt our education to the students we are facing in the classroom. So the props are varied. Um, it could be highlighters just for a change because we're using a black or blue pen all the time so using highlighters it's a you know it's a break in that lesson time you don't need much attention span to get, to take a, white, a highlighter out of your pencil case it's a breather as i said but it's useful for some tasks uh, we use whiteboards obviously but also use dictionaries i do dictionary races and you know what it's very useful for students to have um, to use books and actual dictionaries because the internet is predominant but we still need that it's it's a skill to be able to use a dictionary so in my classroom we do dictionary races it's fun the one who's the fastest to find the definition wins a point and it 
allows a little bit of playing in the classroom. We also use learning mats. Learning mats are just a sheet that are laminated with lots of important keywords or vocabulary or strategies. And very often I ask my students, um, what's the best strategy for achieving this? And they have to just look at the learning mat. It's retrieving information, but it allows them to use their concentration in a different way and it creates a different pattern. Now, um, there is also vocabulary sheet. I often ask students to uh, use vocabulary sheet to find out words that they should be familiar with because we are at a stage where I want them to develop their independent learning. So all these props I sprinkle in my lesson planning and I use them the way a theatre director would use it on a stage. I use them to get my students to concentrate, get their um, attention going, and it's really, really helpful. But before I go more into tips to improve achievement and motivation in the MFL classroom, I think it's time for the news. So let's listen to the news, dear listeners. have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free, with lunch included, and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for Your Voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash yourvoice2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Friday the 14th of October saw many schools mark Restart a Heart Day 2022. In Yorkshire, thousands of children across the county took part in events, learning vital life-saving skills. The Yorkshire Ambulance Service ran events designed to improve cardiac arrest survival rates.
visiting 136 secondary schools and training more than 30,000 students. A spokesman for the service said that since the launch of the programme in 2014, bystander CPR rates in Yorkshire have increased from 39.9 to 74.9%. Across all four home nations, the British Heart Foundation and the Resuscitation Council UK have worked with a range of partners to ensure that more and more people can learn how to save a life. The official Restart a Heart Day was the 16th of October 2022. The I newspaper reports on news that the UK's largest teaching union, the NEU, has announced that it will hold a formal ballot for strike action, with a timetable for potential walkouts to be announced in the next few days. The union represents more than 450,000 teaching staff across the country and said it would move ahead with proceedings after it said the government had failed to respond to its calls for an above inflation pay rise for teachers. A preliminary ballot showed that 98% support a pay rise above the current inflation rate of 10%. The government has offered a rise of 5% for most teachers. The ballot also showed that 86% of teacher members said they were willing to take strike action. The NESUWT has also announced that it will pursue strike action over pay. FE Week focuses on criticism of of exam board decisions to raise fees by up to 17%. It says that schools and colleges face having to pay out tens of thousands of pounds more in GCSE and A-level fees. Exam boards at Excel and OCR have raised fees for all 2023 exams by 6%, whilst England's largest exam board, AQA, has hiked prices by between 5 and 17%. AQA remains the board with the lowest prices overall. Exam boards say they need to hike prices in order to cover costs, while school leaders say the rises are inappropriate at a time when school leaders battle with rising energy and staffing costs. Comments from all boards indicate that whilst they understand schools and colleges are stretched, they try to offer as much value for money as possible and try to keep fees low. In Jersey, the government has pledged to expand its school meal programme to all public primary schools if the £1.6 million funding plan is approved by ministers. The money will be used to create new facilities to store and serve meals, as well as food itself. Chief Minister, Deputy Christina Moore, says the plan shows government commitment to supporting children and families, especially as the cost of living crisis continues. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at keeping your phone charged should power cuts be introduced. Coming home to no power between 4 and 7pm may be something we have to learn to live with as the winter approaches. We can live without most things, however, for most, our mobile phone is the main point of contact. With being in work all day and no means of charging once home, will your phone last that extra bit of time? Before I begin, this is not an advert, so there'll be no brand names mentioned just a look at the technology available to extend the uptime of your phone to keep you connected with your friends and family. The power bank is the obvious choice for extending the charge of your phone. They've come on a lot since they were first introduced. When buying, consider the technology your phone has. If it has an induction charger, meaning you just put your phone on a pad to charge, there are rechargeable induction chargers available. They're like a little backpack for your phone. They come with a stick-on magnet or will connect via an existing magnetic connection if you should have one built in. They can 
can allow simple and secure connections to the charge. Just be aware, some magnetic connections are weakened by the type of case you have on your phone. If you want something more multi-purpose, there are several other types of power bank available. Some double up as torches and hand warmers. However, if you spent the day keeping your hands warm, there won't be much left for you to charge your phone at the end of the day. The next thing to consider while you're making your choices is the capacity of the charge they can hold. This is measured in MAH or milliamp hours. The bigger the number, the more charge it will hold and therefore the longer it will last before recharging. Usually this relates to the cost and also the overall size and weight of the device. To give an example, a 2000 milliamp hour battery will provide approximately twice the charging time as a 1000 milliamp hour battery. Basically what I'm saying is, if you're wanting to charge a device several times throughout the day, then you'll want a large milliamp hour capacity. Finally, if you're going to use a power bank, remember they take time to charge too. So make sure you get into a routine so you're not caught out. Do you already have a power bank? I'd love to hear from you. Why not tell us at TT Radio 2022? I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Right, dear listeners, this was the news. So we were talking about how to promote achievement and motivation when we have students who might have special educational needs. So the tips I have for any uh, modern foreign languages teachers in this situation is to use voice work. And I'm saying that because I'm a bit biased, because I'm a singer, but I do also think it helps to sing, to memorize. This is the same process that was used in um, early year education with nursery rhymes. This is the best way to memorize new vocabulary. So in my classroom, we use voice work a lot. We use uh, choir practices where everybody repeats the same words together. And I do use that in history as well. Whenever we have a long, difficult word to learn, such as anachronism, for instance, um, or trebuchet, or any of these words that come from Latin originally and that we need to, to learn to pronounce and use properly. We use it and repeat it all together. It's called a parroting technique, but it keeps the attention going for everybody. We also learn songs in different languages and I ask my students to record themselves at home singing using Vocaroo. It's a very useful uh, recording app. And uh, this is great for students who are not always comfortable with handwriting or writing because they can do this singing or record themselves talking. And this part of a homework practice that is inclusive. Uh, we do choral drills as well, where we repeat together. With younger children, I would say anything that involves using the body and moving about, it's really important. It's harder to do in, with secondary school children because they develop that shyness that comes with an, a changing body shape and also teenagers aren't always keen on dancing and singing in front of others. So I use it more with kindergarten or primary school children, but you can also use body moves. What my secondary school children love to kind of break that um, lesson and having a bit of a breather. I, I give them a physical task. For instance, every time they hear a particular word, such as um, in the song, in a Spanish song, um, Me Gusta by um, um, Manu Chao, every time they hear Me Gusta, they have to stand up and sit down and they love it. Or there is another song by Mathieu Bougaerts, which is called Comment tu t'appelles? What's your name? And every time they hear 
comment tu t'appelles, they have to stand up and sit down. And that's great. Obviously, excitement builds up, so you need a calm activity to follow. But it's definitely something that allows people who have attention uh, deficits or just any tired teenager to use their bodies a bit and um, just break the lesson into something a little bit more palatable. I use my green pen routine. I remember I told you when I say um, green pen in French and I show the poster, the first one who shows his green pen wins a point. Uh, they love to do that. And also la chenille. La chenille is a caterpillar, but it's just a task where everybody's going to be asking a question and answering a question. So it's simple. We choose a question. It could be in history. Uh, when was um, when was the moon landing? The moon landing was in 1969. So you make them ask the a, a question, the same if it's a language lesson, and they have to ask a question to their partner, who then answers and then asks the question to someone else behind them, and so on and so forth. We time ourselves, and in my most concentrated and focused and attentive classes, we can all ask a question and answer it in 45 seconds, which is great use of time for a class of 32 students. But I mean, I'm going to be honest, in some of my classrooms, when it didn't work so well, it took eight minutes. But that's when there's a bit of ill will at play. Now, this is about achievement. We have talked about the difficulty of having um, big class sizes, children who have special educational needs, and also children who have English as an additional language, and children with free school meals, which means children in poverty. When you have a school with a lot of children who are in poverty, general outcome is lower than in schools where Parents are engaged and happy to contribute to the school and communicate with the school and where attendance is high. So we have, as teachers, to deal with what we're given. If we have um, a student population that is affected by poverty and a social breakdown of families, we won't have the same outcomes, sadly. Now, how do we um, make that difference in outcome less big? Well, it's with motivation. To increase achievement, we need to increase motivation. Motivation, that's the holy grail of teachers. There's two types of motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. I call it the inner drive and the outward drive. So the inner drive is the one that some students have naturally. The other type of students, I call them the Hermione students, the ones who want to learn. They're thirsty and hungry for learning. They always put their hands up. They're always the first ones to put their hands up and they love the teacher-student relationship. They want more homework. They come to see you after the lesson and they say, oh, miss, can I give you some more homework? Can you mark this and that? They're wonderful students to work with, but they are the minority. There's only one or two Hermione's per classroom. Now, the issue is when you have low intrinsic motivation. What do we do when we have students who are not naturally, inwardly motivated? 
Well, it's um, if if I could invent a recipe, I would be a very successful uh, motivating teacher. Sadly, I'm just trying to work it as I go along. There's a lot of research done, and um, I've looked at self-determination theory. I've looked at many, many um, online resources. My issue, and I will, I will be honest, I have a few students who are amotivated. So this is the profile of students who usually miss up to 60% of lessons. So they are high um, absentee. They have a lack of general drive. They're struggling to have their needs met. They are struggling with confidence. They don't see the point in doing anything. They don't really have passion or something that makes their eyes shine and sparkle. They might have difficult home lives. Their school refuses. They are usually almost on the verge of developing developing depression. I have a few students like that every year and it breaks my heart because I think the beauty of childhood is to have that general enthusiasm for discovering new things. The way a toddler is when they see a little snail on the path, you know, when they stop and watch the snail and they're, they're embracing the outside world as, as a treasure. And a lot of teenagers have lost this. Oh, we, could, we could talk for hours on why they've lost this appetite for learning and enthusiasm. I think it might be society. It might be having their needs constantly neglected and unmet by their by their life situation either way how do i make these students more engaged well we need to meet their needs so if, if students are hungry if students are lacking love and if students uh, don't have enough sleep it's going to be almost an impossible task for a teacher. Now, obviously, for safeguarding reasons, if you notice that students like that, you need to um, raise the alarm bell and contact the deputy um, safeguarding officer, which I've done in the cases I'm thinking about. But what we can do when the basic needs are met? Well, we can build on relationship and um, I try to to be engaged with my students at all time and I try to be professional but also caring and I also try to lead by example so I show my enthusiasm for things um, and sometimes it works I think teenagers are quick to laugh at someone who's showing that they're really engaged and passionate about something but deeply they, they like it they respect it I remember one teacher in my um, secondary school who had a passion for corridor. So it's a bullfighting. Obviously, being a vegetarian student, I didn't like his passion for moral reasons, but I could appreciate the fact that he was interested in it and he was passionate about it and he learned about it and he, he, he was using um, Picasso paintings that represented bullfighting. I mean, he, he was... He was really, really obsessed with bullfighting, but he used it in his teaching. And even though I was very much against bullfighting, I could see something about his passion that I could engage with or that I could, I could relate with. So we need to explore self-determination motivation with our students. We need to see what makes them tick. And this is always in the in-between moments when we're not focused on delivering 
a program or a curriculum. It's these moments of breathing space uh, that you have to sprinkle in your lessons where you get to know the students. And after a year or so, even with my very challenging um, inner city London children, I manage to know what makes them tick and I use it for my own advantage, which is imparting knowledge to them. So for instance, I know one is a great soul singer. So whenever we have to do a reading, I will ask this this student to, to read out loud and I will always praise the tone of his voice. Um, I know that there's another one who's who's got journalistic skills and I always tell him, I always say, oh, um, please, could you ask another person this question because you do it so well. And just by using what they're good at, they get more motivated. So this is something you might want to explore. And I'm going to advise you to check the CSDT, Center for Self-Determination Theory. It's got tons of resources about motivation, intrinsic motivation. And there is self-determination questionnaires. If you are in charge of PSHCE, which is Personal, Social Health and Civic Education, which is a requirement in schools, you can use these questionnaires with your students to get to see who is motivated intrinsically and who needs a bit more help to build confidence, to build engagement and to improve um, motivation. These questionnaires are easy to do online and they're fun and they also are one of these diagnosis devices, one of these data collecting devices that we teachers need to use to inform our practice so that we improve motivation and achievement. I will always ask for schools to let students make decisions. I think being motivated is being in control. And if we never allow our students to make decisions, they are gonna be demotivated. So this is why I really want students to have choices, which means they need to be able to choose options and they need to be able to choose languages. <coughs> My apologies. So. I am really devastated when I see children who have studied French in primary school and they want to do French in secondary school, but because of timetable reasons, they're not allowed to. And they have to choose another language or they are given another language. I find it really disrespectful. We need to develop autonomy. And autonomy of decision is one part of it. We need to offer students some choices. So this is why I offer homework choices, for instance. I might say, you have a choice between a reading and a writing. Just, it's a guided choice. It's not real choice. They still have to do homework and that's not non-debatable. But they feel a little bit more engaged because they've made a decision. And you know what? When you make a decision, you need to stick to it. So if they chose to do the writing, then they have to do the writing. Offering variety and a richness of opportunity is really important as well. And I love the fact that we offer clubs, after-school clubs in my school that are free, and the students can choose the ones they want to do. So if they want to do extra maths, they can. If they want to do knitting and crochet, they can. If they want to do contemporary dance or yoga, they can. 
and that's super important to improve their motivation. And either way, whether you have a motivated students, highly motivated students, high achievers, you need to have the same tools, routine, strict deadlines, high expectations, and being accountable. This is non-debatable. Whether you have a high achiever who is very academically gifted or a child who is struggling because they have maybe dyslexia, dyspraxia and attention deficit disorder, your expectations should be the same. Being polite, respectful and trying your best. Obviously, your best is going to be different if you're a high achiever and if you're someone who struggles with uh, handwriting and uh, someone who's swapping letters in their spelling, for instance. But the core and the cornerstone of the classroom is that we follow the same high expectations. We do our best. Effective methods, tips to improve motivation. Well, give students a, se a sense of control. I mentioned it by guided choice. Be clear about learning objectives. You're learning French in order to be able to go on that school trip we promised, and you're learning French in order to be able to get a job if you want to, or to get to the sixth form college you want to go to. And also, um, create a threat-free environment. And I think this is, this is really important. Do not let um, students feel threatened in your own classroom. And always target bullying. If you see a child who is mocking others, do not let it happen and um, be really strict about it. I do give detentions if someone makes a negative comment about someone else's pronunciation or answers. And I always say, we're all here to learn and we can't be belittled. Whether it's me being belittled or another member of staff or another child, we are all due respect because we're trying our best. An effective method to encourage motivation and engagement is to change the scenery. If you can, do field day trips. You don't need to go far. It can be the local park. It can be just a local library. Take your students out. Make them discover the world. You'd be surprised. I'm a teacher in an inner city London school, and I have students who have never been to the local big park. Why? Because they only stay in their local area and even though the park is one mile away they never set a foot in it so take your students out it's a cheap day trip and they will discover new places use positive competition um, this is easy you can select half of the classroom to be one team and half to do another team you can give them the colors if you don't want to, to find a name, uh, and then give rewards. Uh, make one half of the class sing as loud as they can, and then the other class uh, sing as quietly as they can and, and give points to the best uh, choir uh, task. This is easy to do. This costs nothing. It's part of the uh, reward system of every school. You can offer special rewards, for instance, maybe watching a video clip about a French singer. That could be the reward at the end. It doesn't have to be treats. I insist sugary treats uh, do not have their places in uh, school. We face an obesity crisis. Dentists always say it. Do not give sweets to students at school. It's not a very positive way of rewarding.
give students responsibility. Even the most disengaged student might accept to help out tidying the room at the end. This is always what fascinates me. I have very streetwise students, some who are really trying to show that they're, they're, they're like a strong lad, strong man. And yet, sometimes they volunteer to pick up all my labels from those the, the tables. And they even pick volunteer to put the dictionaries back where they should be. And I always find it fascinating how these tough cookies want to help the teacher. Praise them. Always give them responsibility and always praise them. And nurture that enthusiasm to help. So, how does it translate in your classroom? Well, inform them of the lesson objective of each lesson. Do not mock, belittle or humiliate your students. Encourage respect between them. Take your children, your students on field trips. Uh, use different types of homework. I mentioned it. Um, recording homework with Vocaroo, word search, poems. Tell them to write a poem. A haiku is quite easy to do, even in a foreign language. Um, do the green pen competition. Encourage teamwork. Even if you can afford just a tiny little trinket. I organized a um, writing competition this uh, with the... Uh, ALL Association for Languages Learning, and I ordered some Eiffel Tower keychains to thank the students who gave a poem as a contribution. It might cost nine pounds off the school budget for resources, but I think it's important to have a little souvenir when you do something that's out of the ordinary. Um, ask your students to tidy the room and give points whenever they do. So this is all simple and it doesn't cost the earth and yet it can improve. And after a whole year of working on this relationship with your students and trust and, and very clear routine, and they will get to a stage where they might not love your subject, but they might participate in it. Intrinsic motivation can be increased if you engage your students in learning experiences. So when you deliver your lesson or your content, you can grab the attention of your students. You can ask other teachers to help out.